And so I've entitled the message this morning, Supernatural. How many of you guys know that we serve a supernatural God? We serve a supernatural God. The problem is, though, is that today's day and age, particularly in the U.S., we're ruled by science. And in other words, people think that if it can't be sense understood or explained by our, our five natural senses, then, then we're to be skeptical about it or we're to be downright negative about it. And that's what's being taught in the schools. That's what's being taught. And uh, that's what's being pushed from the government and all these things. And I think it really has had a negative impact on on all of our American spiritual life and the impact of spirituality and, and just the welcomeness to the supernatural in our lives. One thing that I noticed when I went and spent some time in Africa ministering over there, they're not hung up on this stuff. And the truth is, is that they see miracles more often than we see them here because they're coming from whatever religion they're coming from and their daily lives. They're, they're not opposed to the supernatural. They, they understand the supernatural. They walk in it. The problem is, is that their, their focus is in the wrong direction. But when we introduce them to Jesus and we introduce them to the God that loves them and that gave his life for them, then they're still welcome to the supernatural and they see, they see healings, they see miracles. I think far more often than we see them here because they're not so hung up on science, they're willing to let God be supernatural. There's a different attitude in these other countries. And there are more stories of healings, demons being cast out, and even the dead being raised in these other countries. You may not know this, but there are, are several credible accounts throughout history, some of them not even that long ago, where the dead are being raised. Christians are laying hands on them praying, and they're being raised. And I've seen, I've seen people that, that, that get so hung up on when we stand and we want to stand and pray for someone to get healed. Or heaven forbid we pray for somebody raised from the dead. Now I understand it doesn't happen all the time. And I don't know the answers to why it does and why it doesn't. That's not my job. That's God's job to decide when and when, when, and when he's not going to move. My job is just to do what he says and that's trust him and put my faith in him. But the reality is these things do happen. And I wonder why, why we always have so much skepticism instead of just trusting what the word of God says. And I think what's really happened is we, we, we don't even bother asking anymore because we've already determined that it's not possible. We've already determined that it can't happen. Or when we do ask, it ends up being lip service. We're just going through the motions. There's no real faith behind it. We don't really believe it. We ask God for provision in our lives, but we don't really live like he's a part of our life. And we treat him like a vending machine. Like, Man, stuff's getting really rough. I guess I better pray for God. Punch the button, hopefully something pops out. But when everything's going okay, we just ignore God. We put him on the back burner. Or we ask God for healing. But if it doesn't happen, as soon as we close our, or open our eyes, we're like, oh, it must not have worked. Even though the Bible says if you lay hands on the sick, they will recover. It doesn't say they'll recover instantly. Sometimes it takes time for God to move to work. But we do the thing where we, we, we ask for prayer, and, 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 and I've done this in my own life. I get a headache and ask God for, Lord, just heal this headache. And then I check immediately real quick. Did it go? Oh, I guess it's not going to work. How about we just keep trusting God and go on with our life and see what he'll do? Or we make excuses for God. Anybody ever made an excuse for God? 
You ever prayed for somebody else to get healed and then to get, they didn't get healed and all of a sudden you're, you're making excuses for God why he did? That's not your job. Your job is to lay hands on the sick. Just do what God says. One of the things that I've come to realize is, is I am much more content to just do what God says. If, if the Bible says, anoint them with oil, lay hands on the sick, that's what I'm going to do. I'll let God work out what he's going to do. I'm just going to do what God told me to do, what the word of God says to do. And I think that's what we should do for everything. The Bible says that we have not because we ask not. So just start asking. That's your job is to ask. Let God do what he's going to do. And if we'll stop telling God why it can't happen, why it's impossible, maybe we'll start seeing God move when we start, stop telling him how he can and can't move. Or what about this one? I've had somebody say this to me when I was believing God for healing with somebody, and they said, oh, but I'm a realist, though. Well, if you're a realist, then you would believe that God is real and what he can do is real. You're just confused. But I think that we tend to rationalize or make excuses and effectively limit God's ability to work in our life because we don't trust him to do what he says that he can do. If we want to see God move in spectacular ways, we have to be open to the idea of a supernatural God moving in supernatural ways. And if you think that the supernatural working of God is a little far-fetched today, we're going to take a look at some examples in the book of Luke. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Luke today and just see that all through the book of Luke, God moves in supernatural ways over and over and over again. Now, how many know that God is the same today, tomorrow, and forever? He didn't just do supernatural, uh, didn't do supernatural things back then and today. He just ran out. He's waiting to get topped up so he has a little more supernatural left. For us, the thing is, is that he works the same today as he always was. And the truth is, is that if we look, as we look to the book of Luke, you're going to see that not only does he work in the supernatural, but he has an affinity to, to working in the supernatural. And it's going to demonstrate his ability. Are you guys ready? We're going to read, uh, start in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 for a little background. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, my most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the reason that we're looking at the book of Luke today is because of Luke. It's because of the person who wrote it and why he wrote this gospel. So if that's the case, the question you're going to ask, well, then who is Luke? Well, Luke was a, a friend and colleague of Paul. He was an eyewitness for much of the account that he wrote in the book of Acts. If you guys don't know, uh, Luke wrote uh, the book of Luke, but he also wrote the book of, book of Acts, which is the follow-up to the book of Luke. And he was writing this book as a historian. He was writing things down accurately. He was following the eyewitness accounts. In other words, he'd been investigating what had been going on. He'd been verifying what had been going on. What he wasn't an eyewitness to, he talked to the eyewitnesses, and he wrote down what happened, and he was verifying what had happened. And he was extremely accurate in his writings of what happened. This is what uh, Sir William Ramsey wrote about him. He was an archaeologist. He said, based on his accurate description of towns, cities, and islands, as well as correctly naming various 
official titles, archaeologist Sir William Ramsey wrote that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed along with the very great of historians. And truthfully, if you do any research on this, you'll know that Luke is actually considered one of the most accurate ancient historians of this time. This is secular and non-secular archaeologists and historians agree on this. What he wrote is what happened. This is not just a, a story or a fairy tale. What Luke wrote is actually a historical document and description of what happened. And he's been keeping track of all of this, and he, he's going to write a letter to his friend, Theophilus. And it says that, I'm doing this so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And this ultimately applies to us, right? If Theophilus could be certain... That means that we can be certain as well. His intent was to accurately record the events and the archaeological record of what had happened during this time. And because that was his intent, we can, we can see the, the areas of accuracy in the historical record so we can know the stuff that, that we can't verify historically and archaeologically. If he was accurate in those things, we can know he's accurate in everything that he wrote. And he is without a doubt telling it in such a way that we can trust his account. The other question is, why did he write it? Anybody know anything about Theophilus? We actually don't know too much about Theophilus, but we do know this. One, it's a Jewish name. Theophilus means lover of God. Due to the use of the title that he says, most excellent Theophilus, he's probably a man of, of some rank. He's an important man at the time. They're thinking he's probably a Roman high class member or, or an official. And uh, he had been saved and, and after hearing the events of what happened with Jesus. And he had been taught certain things by the disciples of Jesus. And Luke wrote this letter to keep track of what was going on and to make sure that he could know that what he was being taught was accurate and it was the truth. And we can trust it as well. So one of the first things that Luke begins to write about is angels. Luke 1, 8 through 13 says, Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. This is an interesting story to me because Zechariah is an old priest. He had no children. A matter of fact, that he, his, his wife was barren. And if we read uh, verses 6 through 7 right before this, it says that uh, they were both righteous before God, him and his wife, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're, they're both really old. Elizabeth is barren. She can't have kids. And if you know anything about this time, she's never had kids. This was actually often considered a curse. Um, this was, this was this, the whole story is interesting to me because the idea of her not having children was often viewed as a punishment by God. But the scripture says that they walked blamelessly before the Lord. So 
she wasn't being punished for some sin. She, she was walking blamelessly before the, the Lord. Sometimes stuff just happens. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes things just don't work the way that, that God intends them to work. But Zechariah was chosen to, to enter the temple and to, to offer incense to the Lord. So he's inside burning the incense. He's praying. People are outside the temple. They're all gathered around. They're praying. And an angel shows up and says that his prayers have been answered in the form of a son to be named John. Now this is weird to me. Because if you think about this, it almost comes across like Zechariah is in the temple praying that, his, that he would have a son. He's in the temple praying that his, his wife would get pregnant. But that doesn't make any sense because Zechariah is an upstanding man and he has a job to do. He's not in the temple praying for himself. He's praying for his people. He's praying for, for, for his community and the other Jews. He's praying for the forgiveness of sin. He's in there doing it. He's, he's praying for them. And God says, I've come to answer your prayers. What was the, the, the prayer? For his people. And he says, you're going to have a son. And, and this is where John the Baptist comes from. He comes to make way, a path for the Lord. This is the start of Jesus coming into the world. And, and John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to begin preaching Jesus. But an angel shows up. Just in case you didn't know, angels are supernatural beings. They are heavenly beings. Luke had just explained how he's going to write a, uh, an accurate account of what had happened and report on what had happened. And only a few verses later, he's writing about angels. So we know that angels are real, that they exist. He's writing an accurate report. And the truth is, at least 14 times in the book of Luke does he mention angels. Over 101 times in the New Testament are angels mentioned. And angels are spiritually, are spiritual, heavenly, supernatural beings. The idea that, that, that somehow God isn't supernatural or doesn't work supernaturally, just a few verses into Luke, we see that eroding away. This is how God works. These are God's messengers that he sent, and they're supernatural, and we see them over and over in the New Testament. And the story is going to go on. In Luke 1, 18 through 20, it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah is stricken mute. Can you imagine? God's like, I'm going to do something amazing for you, but you don't get to talk anymore. It almost seems like a, a, a backhanded thing, right? Like he gets this amazing revelation, he's going to have a great miracle, but then it almost seems like this is some sort of punishment, some sort of curse that he's been giving. Why did God make Zechariah mute? It wasn't punishment. It's because as soon as God told him about the miracle, he immediately begins to try to talk himself out of the miracle. His first thought is, hey, how am I going to know this? I'm old, my wife's old. How am I going to know this? And, 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 and Gabriel says, look, I stand in the presence of God. I was told to give you this good news. And now you're going to be mute, so you can't talk yourself out of it because it's going to happen 
when God wants it to happen. It'll be fulfilled in their time is when these words are going to be fulfilled. That's one of the reasons why we need to keep on believing. When God says in the the word to pray for something, you pray and you keep standing on that promise. You don't give up immediately. Because the thing is, we can talk ourselves out of blessing. We can talk ourselves out of what God wants to do in our life. And, and our life. Here, it looks almost like God is punishing, uh, punishing Zechariah, but the truth is he's not punishing him. He's helping him. Because sometimes you just need to shut up. <laughs> That's the truth. You will try to talk yourself out of all kinds of blessing. Anybody ever had a pretty severe illness and, and, and you don't even want people to pray for it because you don't think anything can be done? Or you've seen somebody. How many of you would have the guts to pray for somebody to be risen from the dead? We see it happen multiple times in the New Testament. I've seen it happen. Uh, I've heard uh, uh, valid accounts of it happening multiple times over the last couple thousand years. But God isn't punishing him. He's doing this to help him so he won't talk himself out of the miracle that God had just promised in his life. It's kind of like when somebody prays to win the lottery, but they never win. They're like, man, God just doesn't answer my prayers. When the reality is, is the reason you don't win the lottery is because God's protecting you. Because if you won the lottery, you would have so much money and it would corrupt you so, so permanently that you would be stolen away from God. And it wouldn't be a blessing, it would be a curse. God is not going to give us unlimited funds if we don't have the, the faith and maturity to handle those kind of funds. Because the truth is, is that we often get in our own way. So God's not punishing him, he's protecting him. And I think that we can learn from this, so we need to sometimes be careful of the things that we say. Your words have power. We've got to stop trying to talk ourselves out of blessing. That's why I always teach you've got to be very careful what you claim. Never say it's my cold or my cancer or my diabetes because even if you have those things, it's not yours. It was never meant to be yours. It was never intended to be yours. Quit claiming it is yours. Instead, declare you're whole because that's what the Bible says. By his stripes, we are healed. And the truth is, as many people, oh no, that was in Isaiah, that was a national declaration. But if you read in Matthew 17, it says that Jesus went around healing all who were sick in order to fulfill by his stripes. They were healed. And truthfully, if you get into the, the way that was written and the words that were used, there's no way you can take out the physical aspect of healing, even in Isaiah, of what he was saying there. So instead, stand on that promise. It's not your cold. It's not your COVID. It's not your sickness. What you have is wholeness, and stand on that. And believe that. It's like I've always said, there's a difference between facts and truth. The fact is, you may have diabetes. The truth is that you're whole in Jesus' name. There's a difference between fact and truth. Facts change. Truth doesn't. Now the question is, will God strike you mute? It's doubtful. The truth is, is that God wanting to, your, to work in your life and to provide miracles in your life probably isn't going to have quite the same impact of Jesus 
making his way into the world, right? This is something that had to happen. God made sure it happened. But the truth is, is that God is a perfect gentleman. He'll allow you to, to, to walk away if you want. He'll allow you to talk yourself out of blessing. He'll allow you to not trust him. But it's our job to trust him, amen? In Luke 126, we're going to look at our next miracle. In the sixth month after the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, and this is Luke 1, 26 through 38, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And when he came to her, he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and, womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore... The child, will be born, who, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, the greatest event that ever occurred in history was the choice of a woman no different than you or I. She could have remained saying, how could this happen, and been stubborn in unbelief. But the truth is, is she trusted God. And this is the, a supernatural event by definition. First, we see angels once again, right? Gabriel shows up again. He's a supernatural being. Second, she's about to become pregnant as a virgin. I don't know if you know this, but that doesn't happen. Science says that doesn't happen. If you have somebody that says that has happened to them, chances are she's been doing stuff she hasn't supposed to, she hasn't supposed to have been doing, and she's lying about it because it doesn't just happen. But this was a, a supernatural event that happened, and, and the truth is that this doesn't happen by accident at all. There's no in vitro and fertilization. There's no none of those things. This, this can't happen except the old-fashioned way. So if she gets pregnant and she's still a virgin, it has to be God. There's no two ways about it. This is a supernatural, miraculous event. And it's actually very similar, similar to the situation one with Zechariah because she was barren. She's about to give birth. But the main difference that we see between Zechariah and Mary is the response. And at first glance, it might almost seem to be the same response, right? Because what does she say? How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answers to her, it's going to be the power of the Most High. Just like the angel said to Zechariah, the difference is Zechariah had to be struck and mute because he was going to keep trying to talk himself out of it. But Mary has a different response. She says, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Zechariah was like, wait a minute, this is impossible. 
He was going to talk himself out of it. But Mary's like, man, this is impossible. But you're God and you can do it. Let it be done to me according to your word. Her questioning was not accusatory or doubtful, but kind of a uh, more a response of wonder. Like, wow, how's this going to be? But this is one of the things. I love her response because it's such an amazing response. It's the kind of response that I aspire to have every time God speaks in my life. And that means from times that God is speaking to you through his word or God's giving you impressions that he's speaking to you. Anytime God is speaking to you, just trust him. Start with the word of God. The Bible says by his stripes you are healed. Just begin trusting that. Putting your faith in that. We may not know how it's going to happen, but we do know it'll be done according to his word if we'll trust in him. And that's, doesn't just go for healing. It's, it's trusting God that you're going to be victorious. Trusting God that you're going to have provision. Just be it done as according to your word, God. Start having that attitude with everything in your life. We should never say it's impossible with God. We should never say it's impossible, but instead, let it be done according to your word. How many of you know the Bible's pretty clear the devil's real too? So we move on. I mean, the devil's a supernatural being as well. Luke 4, 1 through 4 says, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, he being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Church, I want you to know that the devil is real. Don't ever question, don't ever be confused. There's a lot of progressive Christianity saying out there that, oh no, the devil and God's wrath is just a metaphor for, for flowing against God's love. No, the devil's real. And if you're not born again, the truth is that, that we are under the influence of sin, we are corrupted by sin, that, that we are slaves to sin, and we are not righteous. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And if you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will suffer the wrath of God. But if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are born again, you are made new, and you, are, you are, 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 are passed out of the wrath of God. And you're righteous at that moment, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. But the reality is the devil is real too. Now everything's not the devil's fault. There is only one devil. He's not omnipotent. He's not everywhere. Everything bad in your life is not the devil. Sometimes it's the devil, sometimes it's his demons. Sometimes you're just being dumb and you need to change what you're doing. The truth is, the devil doesn't have to mess with most of us because we're all pretty good at messing up our own lives. But the reality is, is there is a devil, he is real, and this is his domain. He's the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel to the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil is the God of this world. He has some authority in this world right now. But the, the truth is, is that when we read this, this story should give us hope. It means that Jesus can relate to us because he's tempted just like we were. Matter of fact, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way that man was tempted. Not a single one of us has been tempted in every way that man is tempted. 
Jesus was tempted in every way that man was tempted. Hebrews 4.15 is where it says that. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The other reason it should give us hope is that uh, it should be good to know that temptation does not equal sin. You can be tempted and not sin. You have to act to sin. When we, when we sin, it's because we let temptation have its intended result over us instead of standing against us and resisting, taking every thought captive. Or in the case of sexual sin, did you know that sexual sin should be treated differently? We're supposed to take every thought captive. We're supposed to resist temptation except for the case of sexual sin in which case we're supposed to flee. That's what the Bible says. I believe that's in uh, either 1st or 2nd Corinthians. I think it's 1st Corinthians. But it says it was sexual sin. You're just supposed to run and get out of there. Don't try to resist that. Just go. Don't even mess around with it. And three, it means that we can be victorious over temptation and live without sin. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is living inside of us. We have the ability to resist temptation, to live without sin. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that means that we're able to resist the temptation of the devil as well. And as a side note, one of the things that you want to keep in mind is that one of the ways that the devil will attack you on a regular basis is to make you question who you are. That's what he did to Jesus. What does he say? If you are the Son of God. This is all about questioning if, God, if Jesus was who he really was. And the devil will do that to you as well. If you really are righteous, why did you fall that one time? If you really are forgiven, why did you do this one thing? And he's going to call into question who you are, just like he did to Jesus. So we talked about the devil being real. What about demons? Demons are real too. Luke 4, 31 through 36 says he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of them, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. So like I said, do you believe demons are real? Because the Bible says they're real. Remember, we're talking about the man who wrote this, Luke, is considered an extremely accurate ancient historian. Matter of fact, a historian of the highest merits. And we know that his purpose of writing this was to be accurate, and he's writing about demons. A couple of things that stand out to me when I read this is that the demons know who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They believe he exists. I mean, the demons believe in Jesus. However, they're not saved. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So we learn something from that. It's not enough to believe that Jesus lived. It's not enough to believe that there was a Jesus. 
But instead, we must believe that He is our Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God and that He gave His life for ours. That He rose again, giving us newness of life. You must be born again. Believing there is a Jesus is not the same as believing on Jesus for your salvation. And something else I want you to know is that we have the same authority that Jesus Christ has. He says, all authority I have given to you. Demons do exist, but we should never be afraid. I remember one time a lady called me, and she said that there was some supernatural stuff going on in our house. She, she thought her, her, her elderly dad was doing some crazy stuff, and she was seeing things and stuff going on. And, and she, started, she wanted me to come out and, and, and see what was going on, and she started telling me all these things that she wanted me to do. And I kept telling her that none of that stuff is necessary. We don't need to put anything on your windows or bring holy water or, or any other thing people have thought over the years that you have to do to get rid of demons. All you need to do is pray in the name of Jesus and you have authority over them. And she kept telling me about all this stuff that's happening. I said, I'm not worried about it. Well, come on, we'll just pray. And I think she was, she was getting upset with me because I think she felt like I was um, uh, uh, not taking her claim seriously. She thought I was kind of of sweeping it under the rug, but the reality wasn't that 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 I, I was I was thinking that she was crazy or not talking all that stuff. The truth is, the answer is always the same: it's Jesus. And the Bible says that we have authority over those things, and we can stand against it. You know, the only thing that, that when I was thinking that I would ever have to face this in my life was that I would go up to one of them and just like the the, the what happened to the sons of Sceva and they went up and and they tried to cast out demons in the name of of, of Jesus who, who Paul adores and he, they said well we know who Paul is and we know who Jesus is but who are you and I told my pastor that I said what if they don't know who I am he's like they know who you are and I just remembered what would I what would I say if somebody said I know who Jesus is I know who Paul is but who are you and the truth is, I would say, I am loved by God. I am victorious. I am righteous in Him. I am holy. I am pure. I am forgiven. I am loved. And He has given me the authority to cast you out in His name. Remember who you are. That's always going to be the question. Who are you? They're always going to question your identity. And in Christ, you've been given a brand new identity. The miracle of salvation is supernatural where a heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is put in. You have the, the Spirit of God living inside of you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you. So the truth is, is that demons may exist, but we shouldn't be afraid because we have been given the authority to do as He did. It's not our own authority. It's been delegated. Don't get me wrong. But he has delegated his authority to us. And that's why John 14, 12 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And just so you know that uh, most theologians believe that the greater works doesn't mean that somehow we're going to find a miracle greater than raising somebody from the dead. It's greater in volume. We're going to do more. Because he's left, that leaves us to do these works. In the book of Luke, we're also going to see supernatural healing as well. Luke 4, 38-40 says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. 
And they appealed to him on her behalf. And, the, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And now when the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. I find it interesting that supernatural healing was commonplace when Jesus walked the earth. That time frame, supernatural healing happened all the time. And nobody seemed to question it. It was easier for them to accept healing than it was for them to accept the forgiveness of sins. Mark 2, 8 through 11 says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned with themselves, saying to him, Why do you question these things in your heart, which is easier to say to, you, to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. It's always been interesting to me that back then, People getting healed, they were like, eh, that's normal. We can see that. God's powerful. But the idea of forgiveness of sins, it just blew their mind. And they got all upset when Jesus said he was going to, he said, your sins are forgiven. Because only God could forgive sins. So the, but the truth is today, every single one of us, our first step of faith was trusting God for salvation, trusting God for forgiveness of sins. Every one of us is okay with the forgiveness of sins, but many of us struggle with believing in healing. Jesus healed every single person. He laid his hands on them, and he healed them all. And this, this wasn't like going to the doctor and getting a prescription. It happened over time. In this particular case, he was healing them on the spot. This was supernatural healing. And the truth is, is God is able to supernaturally heal still today. I know this because I've, I've seen it. If we would just put our faith in him without doubting, I think we would see so much more of it. Personally, I've seen firsthand accounts and I've, I've heard of secondhand accounts of supernatural healing. I personally know somebody who we laid hands on and their leukemia was completely healed. I personally know somebody that we laid hands on and their AIDS were completely healed. I personally know somebody that we laid hands on them and their hepatitis C was completely cured. And this was before it was curable. I personally know somebody that we laid hands on them and their pancreatic cancer was completely healed. I knew somebody who drank sulfuric acid thinking it was a glass of water because somebody had left it out in the wrong place. And, we laid hand, and they had hands laid on them. In this case, it's a second-hand account. But I know the person it happened to. I wasn't there when it happened. But he still speaks and preaches today just fine, even though he drank sulfuric acid because they laid hands on him and they prayed for him and God healed him. And when I was in Africa... I laid hands on a man who, they brought him to me and he was out chopping wood and he buried an axe in his foot. And it had been about a week and they brought him to me and they took off, it was just like a, a handkerchief wrapped around his leg and I could see the cut and I could see the bone in his leg. And we laid hands on him. And the next day they came and showed me his foot and it wasn't completely healed. You could still see there was a cut, but it, it had been a week and you could still see the bone and overnight it had knitted in around the bone and it was, the healing was already starting to happen. I've seen miracles happen. God is a supernatural God, and he still does supernatural things today. But it's always the rub. It's the without doubting part. Truthfully told, healing is one of the areas that I struggle with the most in my faith. Trusting God for financial situations, 
And I don't know why it's different, but I'm, I'm, I'm good with finances. I just keep trusting God, keep giving away money. I know God's going to work out. I don't, I don't care about money because God always takes care of it. For some reason, faith and financial stuff for me is easy. Faith and healing has always been difficult, and I don't know why. Every time somebody gets, tells me a story of them getting healed, instantly my mind goes to, well, how did it happen? What happened? But, you know, I, I start going a different direction. It's actually something that God has been working on me for a long time. My first trip that I ever did any preaching was that trip in Africa that I was talking to you about. And I asked my pastor what he wanted me to preach on. And mind you, I had preached like one sermon before ever. And he said, I want you to preach on healing. My greatest weakness was healing. And that's what he had. Well, I think that's why God had me, <laughs> had me preach on it. And I've been growing in that area. But still today, I, it's, it's, it's something that I have to catch my thoughts and remember that, hey, God is able to do these, I've, like I, I told you, all those experiences that I've personally seen, and my first thought often is to, is to, to look for the other way that it happened. But the truth is, when we trust God and we don't doubt, He is faithful. Amen. In Luke eight twenty two, we're going to see an, an, an evidence of supernatural climate change. Uh, verse 22 says one day he got back into his boat with his disciples and he said to them let's go across to the other side of the lake so they set out and as they sailed they he fell asleep and a windstorm came i have a shirt it's talking about the verse in uh, in matthew but the same story it says jesus took naps be like jesus so it says as they sailed he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were and they were filling with water and were in danger and they went out and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Now this is not some little storm. I want you to think about who's on the boat. Many of the disciples were fishermen. They spent time on the water their entire life. They knew what a little storm was, and they knew what a storm was they needed to be afraid of. This isn't like me out on the boat, and I see a little wave and going, oh, I hope that's not something. These guys knew what they were about. They, so this wasn't some tiny little rainstorm. This was a life-threatening storm. They were concerned, and Jesus is asleep on the boat. You know, as a side note, all too often we have stuff going on in our lives, and we feel like it's a massive storm. And we feel like Jesus is asleep on the boat. And that tells us two things. One, sometimes we need to get up and have faith. Maybe you need to get up and speak to the storm. But the truth is, is we just need to put our trust in him. Because he's always there with us. So these guys, they're afraid. This is a big storm. They wake Jesus. How would you guys feel if you saw somebody that came out and did this? Got up, started speaking to the weather, and it began to change. This isn't natural. This certainly isn't science. Our meteorologists can't even guess the weather right half the time, let alone control the weather. So as you guys know, I told you last week, I do a lot of bike riding. And I keep an app on my phone that I keep track of what the weather's going to be like by the hour so I know what to wear. But mainly I watch for the wind because the wind is like my arch enemy on the bike. And if it gets much above 15 miles an hour, I won't even go out. But the funny thing is, is, I'll go out and I'll look at my app. I'm like, oh, it's only three or four miles an hour. And, about, and, and I'll look, three or four miles an hour. 
The next hour, oh, it's only going to be like six miles an hour. The next hour, it's only like five miles. So like for the next like eight hours, we've only got three or four mile an hour winds. You know, half hour into my ride, all of a sudden I'm almost getting blown over. I've noticed that they never estimate that it's going to be high and that it's actually lower. They always say it's going to be lower and I get out there and I have to ride to the miserable wind. Also, another side note, I got my 100 miles in this week. Exactly 100 miles. Because you wonder what happened on Thursday when I was supposed to ride? 20 mile an hour winds with 30 mile an hour gusts. So I stayed inside. But uh, yeah, they, meteorologists can't even guess the weather right, let alone change it. But Jesus gets up and he commands the wind and the waves and, and it, it, it does what he says. This is not science. This is God moving in a supernatural way. See, that's one of the things that, that we shouldn't be pushing back against God. We should be thanking God that he's not limited by the natural. You see, the, Jesus actually rebukes his disciples for being limited by the natural. What does he tell them? He doesn't say, don't worry, guys, I got this. He says, hey, guys, don't. He doesn't comfort them. He says, doesn't say, don't be afraid. He says, where's your faith? Jesus doesn't comfort the disciples when they're afraid for the life. He actually re rebukes them for not getting up and having faith of their own. So the question is, does this, does this actually happen today? I've heard a couple stories about whether they're actually being torn, turned by people praying. One, um, there was a, a, a preacher that used to hold uh, tent meetings in a large tent, and I didn't write his name down. I forgot. I apologize for that. But the story is, is that there was a storm threatening his big tent revival. And he goes outside and he yells, Devil, if the storm cancels our meeting, I'm coming back with bigger tents and I'm going to reach even more people. And the storm dissipates and he has his meetings. And then he gets done, he goes outside after the, the, the meetings are over and he says, Devil, that wasn't an agreement. I'm still coming back with bigger tents and reaching more people. <laughs> There was also a pastor that had, had, had visited our church in Tucson, the Tucson church, and ministered to us. And he told us a story about a hurricane coming in towards the East Coast. And, and uh, they began praying against the, the, I think it was the East Coast, but they began praying to, to ward off this hurricane. And they watched the hurricane, you know, on radar, come in and actually shift down and completely miss them because they stayed and they prayed. And then my pastor's wife told me an amazing story that she was uh, driving alone um, in the middle of a storm. I think it was a snowstorm. Uh, it was almost like a blizzard. She couldn't see. She was, she was worried about it. So she just began praying and standing against the, uh, the storm. And she said the storm completely dissipated. And she says, I don't know what it looked like on the radar. Maybe there was just a bubble of clean air around my car going down the road. But she prayed and the weather changed. The truth is, is that... That one, we need to have faith when storms come in our life, whether it's physical storms or anything else we're going through, and we need to have faith and stand against those things, amen? What about supernatural provision? God takes care of us. Luke 9, 12 through 17, it says, Now the day began to wear away. The twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away. Go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. Once again, the disciples, Jesus, what are we going to do? Let's send them away so they take care of themselves. And Jesus says, No, you take care of them. He says, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. Once again, how are they thinking? In the natural. Thinking about what's physically possible. And it says in verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men 
And the truth is, I think we'd all be there. Five loaves and a few fish is not going to feed 5,000 men. And typically, when you read stuff like this, 5,000 men, you can think that there's also an equal amount of ladies and, and children as well. So probably about 15,000 people on this field. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. In this story, we see supernatural provision. It doesn't seem like there's enough. The disciples are thinking in the natural, this isn't enough. But the truth is that there was more than enough when they put their trust in God. And Jesus, he prays over it, he begins to break it. And not only do they have enough, but they have more left over than when they started with. Church, this is supernatural provision. We're seeing story after story in the book of Luke, who's an accurate historian telling stories of God moving in the supernatural. The question I have is, are we open to the possibility of God moving and doing this kind of supernatural miracle or not? What about when Jesus moves in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Luke 19, 28-32 says, When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to, to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent him, uh, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. How did Jesus know this? The Bible says that he set aside his, his divinity. The Bible says that he was a man, and, and if you've been here longer, we believe that Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. But the Bible says he set aside his divinity. He walked just like we walked, which is why he could be tempted just like we were tempted. So how did he do this? The power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is more than likely a word of knowledge given to him by the Holy Spirit. He knew what was going to happen. And we see that this is a supernatural thing. This is not a natural thing. He knew that there was going to be a cult there. He knew that it had never been, been ridden before. He knew what to say to the owner. So that the owner would just say, okay. There was nothing natural about this. And the truth is we're able to move in the gifts of the Spirit today. Most of us are afraid to step out. We'll hear God wanting us to do something, giving us a word. Maybe you have a word for the church. Maybe you have a prophetic utterance for the church. Maybe you have a word of wisdom for the church, and God gives it to us, but we're too afraid to get up here and say it to somebody. There are so many people that still today don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but if you go through the Bible, it's evident to me that not only do they exist, but they're here for us today. We just need to have the courage to believe that God, who He is, says He is, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do, to have a little faith and trust in him. We have a story of, of people rising from the dead in the book of Luke 2. Luke 24, 1 through 9, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? 
And then he remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Jesus rose from the dead. Newsflash, that's a supernatural event. And all of our faith uh, and our salvation rests on the premise that Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 18. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The entire foundation of Christianity hinges on Jesus rising from the dead. You know, the truth is, is that most, uh, uh, most atheists, any, any mainstream atheist, most histor- almost all historians, I actually say probably all historians, um, secular, non-secular alike, everybody agrees that Jesus lived. That's actually not contested anymore. It's very, very hist- uh, uh, historically recorded in secular and non-secular places. They know that something amazing happened. You can talk to some of the most uh, renowned atheists and they'll agree that something happened to the disciples to make them go from being completely um, broken to standing up and starting one of the, 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 the most prolific religions that ever existed, which is Christianity. They know something happened. The only thing that they won't agree on is the idea of, of Jesus raising from the dead. Because if they did, then they would have to become Christians too. But the reality is, is that all the evidence of that day, and I would encourage you to look into it. If you want to have your faith strengthened, read about the apologetics of those times, about what happened when Jesus died and, and the evidence for, for, for salvation. A great book to read is Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Um, jo- Joshua McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter, which is very good as well. Um, Read those, and you'll see all the historical evidence for not only Jesus living, but also for his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. But this is a supernatural event. And how many know that the stories that I've just talked to you today, this isn't all-inclusive. Let me just give you a couple bullet points of what else happened. Jesus turns water to wine. Doesn't normally happen. Paul and many others confronted by a resurrected Jesus. So we, now we have Jesus who died. He's risen again. Philip was swept away by the Spirit of the Lord to Azotus, 30 kilometers away. The Holy Spirit picks him up and moves him. The day of Pentecost, when they heard, when they heard voices like, uh, like fire came fell upon them, and they spoke in other tongues. Joseph received visions and dreams and interpretations. This is in the Old Testament. Um, Elijah calls fire from heaven. That whole story with light, it's just a hilarious story. It's fun to read. The sun stood still while the Israelites were fighting the Amorites under Joshua. The wall of Jericho fell. Now most people, when they read this in their head, they, they see their little brick wall in their backyard. They yelled and it fell over. They say that the wall of Jericho was as wide as it was tall. You could fit three chariots wide across this wall. If the wall would simply have tipped over, it would still be tall enough to keep people out. The wall just sank into the ground or something. It just fell and and dissipated. It was a supernatural event. And the truth is, is that the supernatural is a reality for Christians. At least it should be. Now, we may try to suppress it in disbelief. And the truth is, is when we do that, I believe that we limit the ability of God to work in our lives. 
not because somehow we have the power to, to diminish his power, but because God doesn't butt in where he's not wanted. So the question is, will we be a people who suppresses it? Or will we allow God to move? Next week, we're gonna, uh, the, the message is kind of going to be a follow-up to this, and I've, I've entitled it, His Way or My Way. And we're going to talk about the ways that God moves. And are we going to tell God how he can move? Or are we going to let him move how he wants to move? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we going to try to limit what God can do in our lives because we're going to explain to him what is possible and what isn't possible? Because we only believe in science. Or are we going to let God move the way he wants to move because he is a supernatural God who does supernatural things? Church, let us be a people who will let God work and rule and reign in our lives no matter how he chooses to do so. Even if it doesn't fit in with what we think is possible. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.